Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Our guest today is Chef Allison Mountford, the founder of Ends and Stems. Allison is a chef by training and a successful culinary entrepreneur. She started one of San Francisco's first prepared meal delivery companies back in 2005 called Square Meals. She grew Square Meals into a booming cafe and catering company and sold it in 2015. Her most recent venture, Ends and Stems, is even more exciting because it's got a social mission, and I'll let her tell us all about that in a little while. Allison, I'm so happy that you're joining us today. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So why don't we start out by telling us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and did you have any early inspiration that sparked your interest in food? I grew up in Rhode Island, actually, and there's a big culinary school there, Johnson & Wales University, that people flock to from all over the country, really. So that sort of inadvertently ended up becoming one of my inspirations when I was in high school, I guess, early high school. My mom got a job there as a math tutor. So you could also get an undergraduate degree from Johnson & Wales. So she didn't teach cooking. But she became friends with some of the older students and the chef instructors there. And she was the type of person who would just always invite people over our house. So when I was my coming of age years, I guess, in high school, all of these chefs would come over my house. And I have these memories of making mozzarella and sticking sun-dried tomatoes into them and making these mozzarella roulades to make these really fancy cheese plates. Or one of her friends was a chef from Jamaica who came over and was making her family's traditional coffee and nut cake. And I just thought it was really cool. My mom was also into cooking in general. We used to make cakes. She used to make as in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, she used to make really elaborate shape cakes and gingerbread houses. Mm-hmm. So I was always in the kitchen experimenting and playing with things. Right around that time, also the Food Network got really big. So it transitioned from watching Jacques Pepin and Julia Child on PBS to a whole channel devoted to it. So I was an early fan of Rachel Ray and Ming Tsai and Emeril. Emeril actually was from Rhode Island. So he had a whole New Orleans thing, but he... Grew up part of his life in Rhode Island. So we kind of took credit for him. So all of that combined to be a lot of my inspiration. I've also just been really hands-on. I used to do a lot of art. I love a good craft or anything I can build. So cooking to me just always fit in that category of creating with your hands. That's so interesting that you said your mom was making those shaped cakes because isn't that before that was even really a thing? It was. Yeah, she was a little bit ahead of her time. She started, I think, with gingerbread houses, which, you know, obviously go back even further. And I know in the 70s, she was famous for making the doll shaped cakes, which are having a weird retro moment Uh of resurgence, where you make a cake that looks like the giant skirt. And then they give you these 
half Barbie dolls basically that have a big spike instead of legs. So you stick them in the cake and then you just decorate the cake. I know like Susie Cakes is selling them again. And she used to make those when she was in college. And from there, she just would create. I remember her making paintball course when my brother was really into that. She Uh would make the sun and the moon. She would make different toys we were interested in. And we were always making the gum paste flowers and trying to make them look like very specific and true to life flowers. So I just remember sitting at the table rolling out this edible clay to right, help like it her. Was the most normal thing in the world. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it was it felt a lot like Play-Doh, but then, you know, we got to sneak bites of it and you could color it and I always tell people how most people have like a produce drawer and you have a cheese drawer in your fridge. Mm-hmm. We had an icing shelf. Wow. So it was a whole shelf that was just constantly filled with different containers of colors and different types of icing, because depending on what you're doing with the icing, you need a different texture, yeah. a different flavor. That's so inspirational. So you grew up with all of this inspiration around you with, from your mom, but then also from the school where she worked, the students would come to your house. And then so when did you decide to go to culinary school yourself? Yeah, my mom always did it as a hobby. She was not business minded. So it was meeting the chef instructors when they came over and I really saw that they made a career of this, that it went from, I think this really interesting point from it being just something we did at home. My mom was actually a stay at home mom. So it was always in that realm. And then meeting these professionals elevated it to the next level. One of her friends was actually the chef who was on the local news, you know, who would every night do the recipe. So that kind of made it a job to me. That was an interesting transition. But nonetheless, I was primed to go to a quote unquote regular college. So I went to a four year university in New York City and studied anthropology, assuming that I would get a more traditional sort of job. But I was very lost and did not know as they say, what I wanted to do with my life. So when I graduated from college, I moved to California. I'd never set foot. I had no idea what to do with my life. I needed some direction. And instead of looking for a job, I decided to look for adventure. So I came to California. And then here I got a job in sales because that was who hired me. Uh And it was fine. I met a lot of friends there. But I spent a lot of my time soul searching and really figuring out what I wanted to do Mm -hmm. And I really put a lot of pressure on myself to find the first step of my career. I didn't want to just get another job. I really wanted to start my career. And the two things that I found out, one was I really loved the idea of building a business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur because I like problem solving and building. And also I really just wanted to be the boss immediately. I thought that sounded great. And All of the traditional what to do with your life books tell you if you want to start a business, the old school advice is turn your hobby into your career. Right. So I don't know if that's the best advice because (laughs) everything becomes a job. So then if you take your hobby and turn it into your job, you will go through phases where you fall out of love with it and it's no longer your hobby. Yes. My hobby now is knitting. (laughs) I like have to have another hobby, but It did work out great for me. I loved to cook. Still at that time, cooking was still always what I did for an artistic outlet. And I would Mm -hmm. make these elaborate dinners. And I was so inspired by the produce of Northern California, the options and the colors and the ingredients we have available here are just crazy. So beautiful. Some of the best in the country. 
And that was when I decided to go to culinary school. So I remember sitting at my desk one day and literally Googled, what should I do with my life? And I came across an article (laughs) that was the top 10 fastest growing small businesses of 2004 Uh or 2005. And one of them was personal chef. And I latched Mm -hmm. on the word chef. I had never heard of such a thing. And I read the little blurb and it said, most personal chefs own their own business. It's better than working at a restaurant because you get to decide what to do. You don't technically have to have any professional training. And I just immediately, I knew. I remember putting my sales phone on hold. I ran out of the building and I called my dad, who was always my sounding board Mm -hmm. and first source of advice to this day. He still fills that role. And I told him I'm quitting my job. I'm going to culinary school and I'm going to be a personal chef. And was he supportive? Absolutely. Yeah. I think he took a deep breath and he said, okay, let's talk this through. Let's figure this out. That was maybe a Wednesday. And by Friday I had quit my job and I took a week off and then I went to culinary school. Oh my God. That's amazing. And then what was culinary school like? Was it everything you had thought it would be? Was it difficult? And I'm also curious to know about the gender ratios there. Was it mostly men? Was it half and half? There were more men than women, but there were a fair number of women for sure. There were a lot of female instructors, which was great. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. I loved it. And I think because I sort of looked at it as graduate school in a way, which Mm -hmm. it definitely is not technically considered graduate school. To get in, they didn't even want my college degree. They actually wanted my high school transcripts. So in no way was it graduate school. But in my mind, it was the launching point to building this business and it was additional schooling. So because I had already established how to be a student and all that, I took it very seriously. So I was there on time. I was there every day. I asked questions. I sat in the front It was a mix of older students like me Mm -hmm. and then younger students who came right out of high school. So they treated it more like college. They would sleep in, they'd show up late, and they sort of had the cool kids click where they didn't want to ask questions or look stupid or they were afraid to fail. So it was a little bit different for the older and the younger. Also, a lot of students were also working overnight in the restaurant industry already. That's how Mm -hmm. they were paying for it. So a lot of them were just plain exhausted when they would show up at seven o'clock in the morning. My job during culinary school was first to work in the purchasing department at the school. And then second, I got my first client while I was in school. So I worked in the early evenings and the afternoons and was refreshed by 7am. So that part of it was a little bit different for me. And it was wonderful. It was really like a laboratory of getting to play with ingredients and food and ask questions of these really knowledgeable instructors. And then we would critique everything we made with our fellow students. So Mm -hmm. it was really a chance to mess up and learn and experiment and do things that I'm sure there's techniques I did in school that I've never done again. Mm -hmm. And then there are plenty of techniques that I have now since built upon and do all the time. The instructors at the time were not very supportive of this idea of being a personal chef. Was there a stigma attached to that? I think in 2005, it was still up and coming. There weren't that many. It wasn't such a household name. I remember even telling people I was a personal chef or building my first website and people didn't know what that was. Whereas today, if I tell people I'm a personal chef, they know almost everybody knows what that means. They have Mm -hmm. some sense of it. 
So the people who were successfully personal chefing back then were burnt out former restaurant chefs Mm. who already had a name for them because they were associated with other more famous chefs or some famous restaurant. So they could kind of build on that street cred to get hired. And I was sort of a nobody coming out of culinary school with no experience. And a bunch of the instructors told me nobody would ever hire me. There were a few, one chef to this day I'm still in touch with, and he immediately was supportive and thought it was a great idea and thought that I could pull it off. So what's interesting to me, though, about the gender ratio is that if I look back at the people that I've followed up with in my class, Mm. a lot of them are no longer in the food industry Mm. at all. Both men and women, but more women who I've stayed in touch with or know where they are, aren't cooking Mm -hmm. at all for a living. Hmm. That's interesting. I wonder how much that has to do with the environment. Yeah, I think part of my interest in going to be a personal chef and coming at this as somebody who wanted to build a business more than somebody whose primary goal was to be in food originally. Yeah. I think I sort of skirted around some of the most toxic environments that you hear a lot about. And my favorite female chefs, I love listening to the stories of them when they've built their own restaurants and their own empires, because they really get to set the tone of what the culture here is like, what the environment here is like. And they are able by building their own establishments or their own following to step to the side of that. There's a woman named Reem in California who has an amazing Palestinian restaurant. And she was just interviewed about having a baby while starting to build this fast, casual empire. Mm -hmm. And she would have had a lot more trouble doing that if she were working for somebody else. So by being the owner, she was able to just say, well, this is what it is. And I'm either bringing my baby here or I'm not going to be here. (laughs) I would love to hear a little bit about your business, that your first business that you started because you started a few, but Square Meals, I wanted to hear a little bit about what was that and how did you get the idea for it? Square Meals came directly from being a personal chef. So having gone through the professional and commercial kitchens at culinary school and then working in some catering kitchens afterwards as my personal chef business was growing, it was a hard transition to actually go back and work in people's homes. Uh So I think another interesting gender point, especially in the restaurant industry, is women cooking at home is sort of the old stereotypical expectation. But as soon as there's a revenue or a salary attached to it, it becomes the realm of Mm -hmm. men. And we think of chefs as men, and they really have dominated the restaurant world and set the tone of what that's like, Mm -hmm. because it really is a very strenuous, hard, physical job. It's dangerous, and people's bodies just fall apart all the time. Right. When you hear the word chef, I guess the layperson wouldn't necessarily think, oh, hazardous job. Yeah, I don't know. I can't separate it from that. I can think of all my battle wounds and everyone I know with scars up to their neck. And there's gas, there's fire, there's sharp things, there's heavy things, there's boiling water, there's slippery floors, there's specialty equipment. And I almost can't, even when I'm doing my personal chefing in somebody else's house, Every chefing job I've ever had or job posting I've ever put out, you have to be able to lift 50 pounds. You have to be able to stand on your feet all day. You don't get breaks. You barely have time to take care of drinking water or going to the bathroom. So that would be a really interesting poll to put out to see if people do associate it with being a hazardous job or not. 
now that you say it, it's so obvious, but yeah, it's just, it's the yeah. thing I think about, you know, someone making pastries. Or <laughs> yeah, definitely. Which is also hazardous. Those bags of flour are very heavy. <laughs> so square meals was really my attempt to get out of people's houses. So when I was personal chefing in the traditional way, going into people's homes, they lumped me in with their domestic help. Hmm. So I would be with the nanny or the house cleaner, which was fine. But those were employee positions Mm -hmm. in these very entitled households. So I wanted to be seen as a business owner and a professional that was hired to come and execute a specific job and not part of your suite of domestic Mm -hmm. labor. And I felt like that line was a little bit blurred. I also don't love home kitchens as much as I love a big, shiny commercial kitchen that is ready for quantity and ready for the corners to be cleaned and Mm -hmm. you can spray water on the floor and scrub it with a big sponge. And Mm -hmm. I missed the commercial kitchen. So square meals was a way to also serve more people with personal chefing. You can typically only do one client a day, though. Sometimes I was able to do two and I couldn't scale it any further as a personal chef. So my solution to scaling it was to go into a commercial kitchen Mm -hmm. where I could hire cooks to help me out and we could cook for 40 or 50 families a day and then deliver those meals to them that were ready to go. And that idea was revolutionary at the time. People weren't really doing it. It was at least innovative. Yeah, there were not that many others doing it. Certainly some restaurants were trying to do something like that, but there weren't really any personal chefs who were cooking these family style meals. There weren't a lot of places that were delivering meals cold, like cold prepared foods that you would then heat up throughout the week, which is very much the personal chef style. One of the challenges was that I was bootstrapped or self-funded, but also trying to educate people that I existed. And that's what's really hard and really expensive to do. So I have done meal delivery since. Meal delivery is now even a phrase. People, again, if you say meal delivery, they know what that means and they have expectations around it. And at the time, I remember I was learning about SEO and trying to build my first website. And we didn't know if it was called prepared foods to go or meals to pick up. We didn't know if it was personal chef to go, Mm -hmm. but meal delivery was not a phrase that separated it from takeout. And then you were able to grow Square Meals into a cafe and a catering company. Yep. Again, just the logical next step. A commissary kitchen is great. You know, sometimes they call them incubator kitchens. Now they call them cloud or ghost kitchens. But there's a lot of other businesses working there at the same time. Growing Square Meals into a cafe was just the logical next step because in a commissary or an incubator kitchen, there are a lot of other restaurants working there or different food businesses working there. So there's everything from a beer company to a granola company and a bakery and different types of culinary companies all working together in the same space, which is wonderful. And it's a great place to get your feet underneath you and get stable, but it's made to get you to the next level. So the next step for Square Meals was to have my own kitchen space that allowed me to sell leftovers to customers walking by or expand the offering. So that was how it kind of morphed into a cafe. The kitchen space that I rented was on a popular walking street. So a lot of people would walk by. And that was actually my first step into thinking about food waste as well. Mm -hmm. One of the problems with the commissary kitchen was that you couldn't have anybody visit it. So there was no retail leftovers. And it's almost impossible to set out to, let's say, make 
50 servings of turkey meatballs Mm -hmm. and then make exactly 50 servings. Unless you're only ever making turkey meatballs and you practice the recipe over and over and over again, and you use scales and exactly figure out Mm -hmm. how to scale that recipe to that point, there was almost always a little bit left over. Mm -hmm. And I would take it home. My staff would take it home. We would give it away, but there wasn't really an outlet for eating it. So I thought if I had a retail component where we could not only sell prepared meals to go, the meal delivery style, but we could have a fancy kind of high-end deli case, people could mm. walk in and pick up meals, then that would be a way to eliminate some of this food waste. At the time, I wasn't thinking about it as food waste like I do now, yeah. but mostly I was thinking about it from a financial point of view. If you have food waste, that's money that's wasted. Right. And you know, my business was too small to expand that waste. And any good food business is always trying to think about how can we sell every single last crumb because the margins are so small in food businesses. So, and then you had a successful exit from that company. Yeah. So we did it for about four years. And during that time is when all of these other meal delivery apps and services came out and they were different from me because they had a lot of money. And what I also think is very interesting back to the gender disparity is they were all run by men as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were run by not chefs, but men who were in the tech world. So these guys came in and they, unlike me, who started this sort of passionate, take your hobby and turn it into your business, old school method. Mm -hmm. These were men who came in from the tech world and said, Where's the hole in the marketplace? What can I disrupt? And which of these venture capitalists is going to give me many millions of dollars to blow a hole in the system? And they came through with the classic Silicon Valley rake things or what is it? Go fast and break things or... And they really did. So watching their businesses grow, they had a lot of money going into it, but they never did it any better than I did. They just sort of made bigger mistakes and had bigger problems because they had all this money going into it. But a bunch of them truly did take my model and add millions of dollars to it. I never tried to raise any money Mm -hmm. to do that. It didn't even occur to me to look. I was so far from the venture capital world. It never even occurred to me to do that. Right. But it was interesting that now none of those businesses exist either. I was able to sell my business and I sold it at the end of 2015 because what they were able to do very well were build delivery apps. Mm -hmm. So they could get their food to customers. Like customers could order from them at 4 p.m. and have their food by 5. And I just couldn't compete with that. I was over here with a 48-hour order window and I just looked like an old dinosaur and (laughs) (laughs) nobody was ordering. So I had a certain suite of customers that loved what I was doing. They were very passionate about our food and supporting me in it, but it got really hard to compete. And I hit a plateau and I frankly just couldn't get to that next level without some sort of cash infusion or changing the business model. I also at this point was very burned out. I had been doing this for so long without ever taking any sort of a break. And the other thing that happened that year was my daughter was born Mm -hmm. and So many people that I've met over the years will say something along the lines of, oh, you can't run a business and have baby or food and kids don't get along. You would never be able to do it. And that isn't actually what happened. What happened was she was born and I was really passionate that I would take a break. So I scheduled myself eight weeks off, which was by far the longest break I had ever taken. And I was blessed with a very easy baby. 
She did not give me much trouble at all. (laughs) And my break was amazing. And I actually felt whole for the first time in a while. And Mm -hmm. I had some space. And it was the first time I really got to sit down and look at my business from afar and say, hey, do I want to keep doing this or not? And I figured out that I did not. So I sold it. So I want to hear all about your new business, Ends and Stems, because there's so much behind that. It takes so much of your previous experience and puts it into a whole different business model. And you have a social mission. So why don't you tell us a little bit? So it's one of those things I feel like the path only makes sense in hindsight, right? So Mm -hmm. I did take all of these other pieces. I spent a lot of time after I sold Square Meals actually feeling like a total failure because my mission was never to sell it, especially Mm -hmm. after only four or five years of running the meal delivery part of it. But now with that three or four years behind me, I can see that I needed all of that experience to get where I am now. And I'm so excited Mm -hmm. about ends and stems and the solution that it's offering. One of the things that felt like it was missing from Square Meals is ultimately I was just trying to sell high quality food to wealthy people who could afford it. And it started to feel like, what was the point of all of this? Selling the food that I wanted to cook was very expensive. So I couldn't make affordable food. It was only expensive food. Mm -hmm. So I really thought if I had another business to start, it would have to have a bigger mission. And at the same time, I had always been thinking about the food waste factor. And then after I sold square meals, I still needed a job. So I sold it, but I certainly didn't make enough money that I was taking a year off to travel or anything like that. I needed a job. So I went to work for one of these other meal delivery companies that had raised a lot of money. They were a huge operation. So if I was serving, let's say a hundred families doing meal delivery for square meals, Mm -hmm. this company was serving 10,000 meals on a Monday. So that's how much bigger they had gotten with all the money that they raised. Mm -hmm. And I was in charge of buying the food and also throwing the leftovers away. Um, And the scale of what they were throwing away was just mind blowing and very upsetting. I remember standing outside on the sidewalk with my team who were the guys responsible for truly taking the trash out. And the five of us would just stand there and look at the dumpster filled with food and It was upsetting. All of us were upset every day. And because the company didn't prioritize doing anything with it, we could donate some of it to food banks. And But there's all these policies in place that actually can make it challenging for a company to donate food for free. I think people think it should be free, but a lot of times you actually end up having to pay to donate food, Mm -hmm. which is very counterintuitive. And it's something we need to think about and change. I mean, if you think about it, you pay to have your trash taken away too. So of course you need to pay to have edible food taken away, but the industry sort of hasn't caught up. Mm -hmm. But that got me really passionate about food waste. And I started really digging into it and learning about it. There was a big report that had just come out in 2012, and then it was updated in 2015 about the environmental impacts of food waste. Mm And one of the factors was that most people waste food in their own homes. Hmm. And that's the biggest percentage of all the food that's wasted happens in our homes rather than at the grocery store or at the farms like we often assume. So I thought, I've worked in people's homes. Uh I know about food waste. I will close this gap. So Ends and Stems is really the solution to your in-home food waste and what potential 
customers and people that had sort of been on my email lists and people in mom's groups and my local community in San Francisco told me was that they find that they waste food most because they don't know which recipes to choose. Mm. They don't know how to make a good grocery list and they don't know how to maximize the groceries that they do take home. And a lot of times they just feel like it's easier and cheaper to throw things away Mm. than actually invest the time in cooking it. Mm. So Ends and Stems is a meal planning service. It's online, which is a huge change for me. Basically, it's a web app, functions like an app if you use it on your phone, but it tells people, okay, here are the three recipes that you'll cook this week. I've written them so that they fit together like a puzzle so that you can buy fewer ingredients and without having to even think about it, you will use up everything that you buy that week Mm -hmm. to cook your three or four meals without having any food waste. That's amazing. So Now that we're in the middle of COVID and things are a little bit different right now, have you found yourself having to pivot or since you're a tech company now, is it the same? It's so funny to be a tech company now. When you say that, I don't even relate to it, but it's true. (laughs) I do sit here playing with the computer all day long. So the first couple of weeks, everything just stopped on a dime. I feel like a lot of businesses probably experience that. And because Ends and Stems does give you a grocery list and tells you go to the store, buy these things and cook these recipes, it was really, really quiet for Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks when people were afraid of going to the grocery store. And at that first shelter in place order where they said, try not to go out for two or three weeks. Yeah. So I didn't see many cancellations. And then stems only cost 10 or $12 a month, depending if you use a discount code or not. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the thing that people were immediately canceling because it's not that expensive. Right. So it was more just, I didn't see any new signups. But then after that, people started having questions like, I have all these dried beans in my fridge, Uh or how can I reinvent my leftovers? Or the other big thing was people are suddenly cooking every single day and they needed new ideas and inspiration and help. And so then I started to kind of see things come back around. So one of the first things I did to pivot was put out an ebook. So I spent a lot of time just putting together a pantry guide, how to grocery shop safely, how to look at what you already have in your house how to store different food items so that they last longer and you can make the most of them, how to cook something once and use it twice. And that was just a free ebook. Really, I just wanted people to follow and know that I exist. So there's always sort of two parts of the internet business, which is just giving people free content and information so that they see me as a trusted source. And then the other side of things, which is to actually sell them on ends and stems. So the ebook was really very successful. I'm working on a second version of that, which is going to be more like a cookbook for really quick recipes. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, just always to get more people following along. And I would say things have balanced out now. Even though people are still sheltering in place where I live, they're not as afraid to go to the grocery store and the grocery delivery companies Mm -hmm. seem to have found their way through. So it doesn't feel so hard or scary to get groceries anymore. Right. So I would say ends and stems is pretty much back to normal. People are cooking along, they're sending photos, new people are signing up when they find out about it. So that's great. I didn't feel like I had to pivot that much, but I do think I learned more about marketing online. Mm -hmm. I've been doing more videos. I started a newsletter. I've been working on these eBooks. I'm thinking about putting together some sort of cooking course. I've been going live more on my Instagram feed. So all these things that I thought I should be doing before, but always felt like I didn't have time to pull off. Yeah. Suddenly now 
because I can't go meet someone for coffee or work on this deal or that, or I felt like I did have time and it was important to do those things. So that was my pivot, but my business was a pretty good fit for this situation. And I think I've been able to truly help people. Absolutely. It seems like it's more relevant than ever. I know at our house, we've had this feeling before we didn't like to waste food. Okay. But now it feels very scary to waste food because you don't always know if you're going to be able to get kale again for a few weeks or something like that. So you want to make sure you're using everything to its utmost. Yeah. And even just to minimize shopping trips, even though you can go now, it's still more of a pain to do it. And it is a risk that you have to take, but it is still potentially a risk to go to the store. So even if you're not having a full on anxiety attack about it, like I think in the first couple of weeks, people were it still is something you want to do less of. And then if the benefit of that is that you're taking a step against the effects of climate change or you're saving money every week, those are all good upsides, which is, I always say my favorite thing about being a proponent for reducing food waste is that there is no downside. It is a win, win, mm -hmm. win, win. You save the planet, you save money, you save time because you don't have to go back out to the grocery store. And you can start now for free and whether you pay for an ends and stem subscription or you just do it on your own, mm -hmm. you can get started immediately. So there's that. no downside to it. Congratulations. I saw you were recently featured in Wired magazine. Yeah, that was huge. They wrote a review of the app. And honestly, I was nervous. I am a chef, not a tech builder. And you know, Wired is a big notch. And I got yeah. a great review. And that was amazing. I saw a lot of signups after that. And it was a really nice article that they wrote. It was wonderful. Ends and Stems has been featured in Forbes and San Francisco Examiner. So you're doing great. It's really exciting. Yeah, thank you. So where can our listeners get in touch with you? Where can they sign up? Where can they find out more? On all the places, it's at ends and stems spelled out. So I have a Facebook page, but I also have a Facebook group. That's a lot of fun. We kind of take questions every day, but those are both at ends and stems on Facebook, Instagram. I do a lot on Instagram. I'm starting more live series and things like that. And it's just at ends and stems. The website, which is where you get the meal planning and the recipes is www.endsandstems.com. And from there, everything else is connected, the YouTube channel and all that stuff. So I was able to get the handle on all the places. Oh, great. Any final note you'd like to leave us with? The number one thing I would say about reducing your food waste is start with what's in your fridge. So people always want to know what's the first tip? How can you get started? Just look at what you have and pull everything out, make a list. On the website, I have something called the What's in My Fridge Recipe Finder. So if you don't know how to combine things to make a recipe, this is a free part of the service. You can just type in two things that you have and it'll deliver a recipe for you so that you can get started cooking from what's in your fridge. And follow along on Instagram. And so many people tell me all the time that just by knowing I'm out there, they're reducing their food waste. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not giving me your dollars, <laughs> it's still a win for my business. And I'm still really excited about it. So so try the what's in your fridge recipe finder. Well, Allison, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. You are an inspiration. Thanks, Emily. I'm really glad we were able to share a little bit of your story. Me too. Thank you for the opportunity. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.